We're almost done with Acts. Can you believe it? Should we go back and start all over? Are you guys, uh, okay, we'll just, we'll just rinse and repeat this whole thing, right? So Acts 25 is where we're going to be. Uh, I had the opportunity a couple weeks ago to uh, speak to some kids at Valley Christian School, kindergarten through fourth grade, fifth through eighth grade. What do you think is the scarier audience? The kindergarten, yeah, the K through four. That's let me just, just put this out there. They are the scariest demographic of people in our world. And uh, trying to, to teach a lesson, uh, you just never know what's going to hit, what's going to stick, what's going what's to make sense to them. So uh, I was given a passage to speak on, and it was uh, Mark 2, where the friends bust a hole in, uh, I think it's Peter's mom's house, lower the friend down who's paralytic to be healed by Jesus, and um, Basically, my take on it was this, that uh, God's a God that likes to party with his people. Now, I know some of you are like, how do you get that from that text? Well, um, Jesus throughout the scriptures, throughout the New Testament, God throughout the Bible, uh, is either going to crash our party or we're going to crash his party. Those friends wanted to crash Jesus' party. Why? Because they wanted their friend healed. And so that was my text. I spoke on it. And uh, what's, you, you never know how it's going to hit. You never really get feedback, right? You, you don't get kids weeping and crying and whatever. They're just kind of like in this catatonic state. Well, Mrs. Greg, who teaches fifth grade at Valley Christian Schools, if you guys don't know who Mrs. Greg is, she's right there. Linda Greg, give it up. She has her class take notes on the chapel, and those notes are on little post-it notes from each of the kids. And she, the following week, came in and gave me the post-it notes of the, uh, the, the points that the speakers, speaker made during the message. So I have, this morning, for you, the notes these kids took. So these are fifth graders. So uh, I love this. So one kid wrote, um, God has good plans for us. Amen? God loves us, and God wants us to party. So those were the three points. So I like that. So uh, this other one said, Jesus is the party animal. And I did say that. I said, you guys don't know this, but Jesus is a party animal. I know for some of you who are like maybe sensitive to some things, you're like, can we say that about Jesus? Yes. He brings the party. Wherever Jesus is, that's where the true party's at. Amen. Jesus came to eat and drink with sinners, right? There's the party uh, around a meal. The Bible is filled with celebration. A, a party with Jesus is the best party ever. Can I get an amen on that one, right? Um, this other guy wrote, Jesus loves to party, right? So you're seeing, you're seeing the theme here, right? Um, and uh, God is the party man. Someone else wrote, God is the party man. And Jesus uh, came to save us, yes. And then this one says, we, we cannot have a good party without Jesus, Right? We've, we've been down that. And then this other one wrote, uh, Jesus is the party animal. And, and there you go. So there's, uh, there's Pastor Scott Morgan's uh, three-point outline, right? So um, I, I think we forget about that, that God has come into our world to invite us to the greatest feast, greatest banquet, greatest party ever. And uh, if you try to party without Jesus, it ends up being miserable. And I say this because in... Luke, I mean, Acts 25, we get invited to a party. We're, we're, there's a party scene, even though it's not necessarily framed as a party, because we have a man, Paul, who's a prisoner who's standing on trial, 
being guilty of preaching Jesus. Now, you wouldn't think a man on trial, a man who is in prison for his, his beliefs, that there, there, there can be this party atmosphere, but that's one that's created in Acts 25. Turn your Bibles there. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 27. We're going to see a party that is set up without Jesus and how Paul is going to interrupt this party without Jesus and bring Jesus to the table. And there are things in this passage that I want us to tease out this morning that I think shouldn't surprise us, but oftentimes they do. That there are certain certainties that happen in our relationships with people that sometimes we forget. Um, we, we forget where people are at. We forget what people are wrestling with. And I think what we have here are good reminders of where the world is at when it comes to their, their relationship with God, even their relationship with us, the church, other believers. And I think what, what we have here is this scene where we need to be reminded of, of six certainties. If we're going to, to invite people to the true party, which is with Jesus, right? So if you leave with anything on your mind, just one point, just the best party is the one with Jesus there. Amen? So uh, Paul's going to bring the, the, the Jesus piece to this dynamic that's going on in this scene. We're not going to deal with Paul's address, so we're going to leave it short at the end of 25. You can read ahead in 26, which we'll pick up next week, but we'll finish out the chapter because there's this guy named Festus. He's got some royal dignitaries in town. He's going to throw a party, and as entertainment, he's, he's going to bring Paul forward to give a defense of, of what he believes, what he's about. So now again, you're thinking to yourself, why would this be a party? Well, Festus has in his mind, I need someone else to look into this case because I can't figure out what this guy's guilty of. So he invites King Agrippa, a king which God, through Jesus, promised Paul that you will stand before governors and Gentiles and kings and give a testimony to me. So here's the king part of it, right? King Agrippa. We'll talk about that here in a bit. bit. So we're setting this up, this scene up for Paul's sixth and final defense of Christianity in the book of Acts. And this is the, most lo this is the longest and most elaborate of his speeches, uh, which again, like we, I said, we'll cover next week. So let's look at chapter 25. We're going to set the scene, and then we're going to talk about six things we shouldn't be surprised of, certain certainties that exist in our world as we think about how God is working and how he wants to use us to minister to people, especially people who are really, really far from Jesus, as you're going to see in this account. Uh, chapter 25, verse 13, and now in several days had elapsed, circle that phrase, several days, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. He's the new governor, so it'd only be appropriate to come in and just say, hey, congrats on the new position, right? So they come to town, and while they were there spending many days, circle that phrase there, as with Paul, many days, several days just came to be constant in his life, right? Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, hey, there's a certain man left a prisoner by Felix. It's like he's in leftovers from the previous administration. He's, in, he's now in, in my care. I don't know what to do with this guy. And remember, Paul's been here two plus years in prison and nothing has been able to stick on this guy. He is not guilty of any of the, the accusations brought to him. And when I was at Jerusalem, verse 15, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation upon him. And I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused 
meets his accusers face to face, which is a great rule, and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. And so after they had assembled here, right, and we looked at that last week, there was this intimidation. They circled him like ravenous wolves. I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal, ordered the man to be brought. And when the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting. Meaning, as you're going to see, the things that they had beef with with Paul were theological issues, not political issues. And what is the core theological issue that Paul continues to come back to? The resurrection of Jesus. Can you imagine being held on trial in prison because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That's Paul right here. And when the accusers stood up, they brought charges against them, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and specifically about a certain dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. So there it is, right? The gospel is being shared, right? This guy named Jesus, he lived among us, he did these miracles, he died this death, and then he rose from the grave. And at being at a loss and knowing how to investigate such matters, this is a completely foreign concept to Festus. I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these matters. And of course, Paul, he's a smart cookie. He's not going to Jerusalem. He just knows that he's going to die there. So what does he do? Remember last week, he appeals to Caesar, right? So, But when Paul appealed to be held custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. And Agrippa says to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. I'm curious about this guy. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So he's going to be brought out before King Agrippa, which, again, next week is the most elaborate, most detailed speech Paul gives in front of an audience like this. Now notice how they prepare for Paul. Verse 23. And so on the next day when Agrippa had come together with Bernice amid great pomp. Now there's pomp. And then there's great pomp. You know what I'm saying? That's called a party, right? Back to the party uh, message. They're going to throw a party. They're going to throw a party surrounding this prisoner who's been preaching this man, Jesus, who was dead but now is alive. They're, they're throwing a party with great pomp. And had entered the auditorium, accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city. Again, this is no small gala. This is a huge deal, and everyone who is anyone in town is showing up, and the whole point of celebration of this party is to hear this little Jewish man named Paul testify to this strange thing that a man has risen from the dead. Pretty cool, huh? They're having a party, but they don't have Jesus, so it's really not a cool party until Jesus is part of that party, remember? Because Jesus is a party animal, amen? And at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So they all assemble, all in their, their attire, and, you know, the band's playing, and they've got streamers, and they, who knows, they got a DJ, and all of a sudden, at the proper time, everything's right, he pounds on the, on the podium, and it's time for Paul to come in. The central focus of the great pomp. And Festus says, King Agrippa, and all you gentlemen here present with us, you behold this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. Meaning, Paul is not afraid to die. Be careful of a man who has convictions who's not afraid to die. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. Here's where 
Festus is just a placator of people. He knows this guy is innocent, and yet he's using him as a political pawn. For what purposes? We don't know. But he knows he's not guilty. And since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. And not like he had a choice in it, because as a Roman citizen, you could appeal to Caesar, and you, you must appear before Caesar. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. Meaning, I don't know what to write, because he's going to stand before Caesar, and Caesar's going to be like, why are you here? There's nothing on your, on your files. There's nothing specific. So Festus essentially says to King Agrippa, I need you to help me write something so that when he stands before Caesar, there's something that's being investigated. For it seems absurd to me in sending the prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. May God write his eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. So now you're asking yourself, seems kind of dry, seems a little bit of history, what's going on here? Six certainties that I think are in this text that we can point out because Paul is fully aware of certain things that we need to be reminded of. Sometimes we're surprised by, but there's six certainties I think here. Number one is this, the certainty of humanity's delays. So, Again, what happens with Paul is that his situation's put off, put off, put off. From one governor to the next governor to this politician to that politician. Sometimes the world doesn't know how to respond to believers. Sometimes the world doesn't know how to respond to Christians. Sometimes the world doesn't know how to respond to the truth claims that we assert, right? Especially the core of the gospel. Christ crucified, buried, risen again on the third day, right? And so humanity tends to delay. And notice... There is not a moment of delay that happens with Paul where he gets discouraged. There's not a moment of delay with Paul's situation where he's frustrated. At least nothing that we're, that's documented for us. Here's what I love about Paul when it comes to delays is that de human delays never mean God's denials. Just remember that. God, humanity's delays never mean God's denials. He's exactly where God wants him, and Paul is keyed in to God's timetable, not humanity's timetable. And maybe you've experienced this personally in your life. You ever thought to yourself, I'm going to go before God, and God, I'd like to do this tomorrow, and I'd like to do this next week, and I've got plans six months from now, and God steps in and goes, you know my specialty is to take your plans and break them. You know my specialty is to say, oh, you think that's going to happen tomorrow? Well, let me throw something else at you. How many of you have experienced this? God's timing is not your timing. And instead of being frustrated, instead of being discouraged, here's what Paul does. He doesn't complain about any present circumstance because on one hand, he knows he can't control those circumstances. How many of us need to be reminded of that? We can't control the things that happen in our lives, the things that happen through other people, the other things that happen through situations. But instead, here's Paul's secret sauce. You ready for this? Whatever situation I'm in, I'm going to learn how to serve God and share Jesus. Write those two things down. Serve God and share Jesus. You want to you protect your heart from getting bent out of shape with God? You're angry at him because he's not working according to your timeline? Adopt the mentality of Paul that wherever he may be, whoever he may be with, he's got two things in mind. I'm going to serve God here, and I'm going to share Jesus here. 
There's nothing wrong with having plans. There's nothing wrong with coming before God and say, God, would you honor this desire of my heart? I'd love to do this in a week. I'd love to do this in six months. But you have to, in the words of an old song from the 80s, because I'm old, 38 special, hold on loosely. You know that song. You got to hold those plans loosely, baby. You got to hold those things loosely because ultimately God is the one who's in charge. And he doesn't want those, that, that your timetable, your plans, your goals to become an idol. We become so fixated on things, we forget about what is our purpose here. Our purpose here is not to fulfill my will, my agenda, to establish my kingdom. Our purpose here is to serve him and share Jesus. And so let me just protect you. Let me just guide you. Delays are not denials, but divinely given opportunities in disguise to serve God and share Jesus. Second certainty, point number two, the certainty of humanity's sinfulness. Because what you're going to see is that you want to talk about a group of people that if I could use the word depraved, these people are depraved at the uttermost. Now, all of humanity is depraved. We all fall short of the glory of God. There's sin that taints every faculty of we, who we are, but we can continue, continue to... Uh, um, not in experience improvement, but, but deprovement. Can I, can I get an amen on that? Is humanity, just when you think you know someone's story, there's always something deeper. You go, man, they're worse off than I thought. <laughs> Take Agrippa and Bernice. What we're going to cover here is some pretty difficult material because people are worse off than we can imagine. Paul is not shocked with the audience he gets to speak to, and neither should we. We forget how wicked people could be. So Bernice and King Agrippa come to town. Let me tell you about these two. King Agrippa II was the latest and last of the Herod dynasty. Now, if you know about the Herods, uh, these are people, men, who have had a dynasty that have meddled with Christ and his followers for decades. Agrippa II would be the last of the Herods. Now, as a, as a, just to serve you as a reminder... These people have been difficult for Christianity for several decades. Um, remember the great-grandfather, King Herod? He was the one who feared the birth of the Christ child and murdered the male children in the vicinity of Bethlehem, two and under to be killed. That was his great-grandfather. His great-uncle was the one who murdered John the Baptist and actually met Jesus during his trial, only failed to see Jesus for who he was, really was. His own dad, Agrippa I, was the one in Acts 12 who had James, the first disciple, martyred, who he himself, remember, arrayed in that incredible outfit that was like mirror-like and reflected the sun out in the auditorium and was, was accepting the worship and praise of the people, and then he was struck dead and eaten by worms right there in the stadium. Imagine that. That would be a good show, wouldn't it? This is his ancestry. These are his people. Not an illustrious one at that. And ladies and gentlemen, here is a man who is part of this lineage, this, this line of leaders who are familiar with Jewish history, Jewish belief, and yet here's Agrippa who's inherited the effects of generations of powerful men with flawed personalities. Here is a man who each son followed his dad in weakness, mistakes, and missed opportunities. You think about every single one of those leaders. Every one of them had an encounter with, with Christ to some degree. And each of those men rejected what was presented to them. 
Each generation had a confrontation with God, and each generation failed to realize the importance of his decision. So there's Agrippa. Now there's Bernice. This is when things get a little crazy. So Bernice is Agrippa's sister. They are living together in a marriage-like relationship with each other. She just got done being married to her own uncle who died. Now she's in an, in an incestuous relationship with her own brother, which even among the Romans was considered disgusting. Now you know when you've hit the depravity of sin, when even the Romans go, yeah, we don't do that. This is real life Game of Thrones stuff going on here. I remember years ago uh, hearing about a new reality TV show, as if reality TV show, it, you know, it's still among us and perhaps as depraved as ever. But years ago, there was a reality TV show commercial, and it started like this, which anyone would be intrigued. It's, it, it, had a, it had this voiceover. It says, my mother hates my boyfriend. We've moved 37 times in the last year, and my father is my uncle. And all of a sudden, the mystery builds, and what? guess what it was for? It was for an Animal Planet show on meerkats. Does anyone remember that? <laughs> right? Like, we sit there and go, okay. Now, that's true for the animal kingdom, and we give the animal kingdom some liberty and go, yeah, there's some crazy, crazy. But you would never think that kind of stuff with human beings. Every single one of us looks at this situation with Bernice and Agrippa and go, that's not right. Any single one of us would sit there and go, these people are messed up. And yet here she is having an incestuous relationship with her own brother whom she will leave later on and have a relationship with not only Vespian, a Roman emperor, but also his son Titus who would destroy Jerusalem in AD 70. This is a woman who moves around in some pretty depraved circles, doing some pretty wicked things. And ultimately at the end of her life, even Rome didn't think it was good for the emperor at that time to be consorting with her a Jew, and she ends her life in great poverty and bitterness. What is the profit of a person if he or she gains all of her little fleshly proclivities and yet loses her soul? The Herod family tree <laughs> is an infested one. Think about it. Murder. Maneuvers for power, incest, moral dissoluteness. And yet Paul is going to stand before these people. But you know what Paul doesn't do? He doesn't come out and say, Agrippa, we know about your story. Oh, Bernice, we know about you. And he doesn't. Paul is standing before this depravity, and he's going to talk about one thing. Christ and him crucified. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't want any story of any person to shock us where we feel like this person's unreachable. This person has done so much wickedness. They've been involved in so much sin. Heck, there might, could be people in this room this morning. It's like people don't even know the real me. Here's the good news is that God does, and he can reach any heart, any soul, no matter how far it may have drifted from Jesus. No matter how wicked that that spiral goes god can reach it because where sin abounds grace abounds all the more romans 5 20 so paul is going to stand before these people and he's going to share the same message with them that he would share with any other person on the street you need 
Jesus. Amen? Point number three, there's the certainty of humanity's ignorance. Believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, as I've said maybe in the past, you may have heard me say this, you may have remembered me saying this, I really feel like our day and age is one where it's almost like first century Christianity today. What do I mean by that? People are unfamiliar with Christ, Jesus. Heck, even talking to people about Christmas and Easter. Have you ever had this conversation with people? And people are like, what do you guys celebrate at Christmas? And you're sitting there like, really? What do you guys celebrate at Easter? Now, I, some people know about Christmas, but they don't know about Easter, or they know about Easter, but they don't know about Christmas, right? Two major holidays that people celebrate, but at the heart, they don't know why we're celebrating it. I talk to people all the time, and I sit there and go, and, and I don't want it to look like, you know, I'm like amazed that they don't know these things, but a part of me just reminds me that people are really ignorant of, of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Here's Paul, who's already shared with Festus, and Festus has already said he's ill-equipped to deal with this guy. Why? Because the charges are not political, but they're theological in nature. He doesn't know what to do. And even his reference to Jesus as there's a certain man. <laughs> Notice, there's a certain man who is dead, and Paul asserts that he's alive. That word asserts means Paul repeatedly asserted, meaning this was part of his vernacular. This for Paul was the greatest message, the resurrection of Christ. And again, the idea of the resurrection, anyone who is killed and risen from the dead should be a pretty amazing thing to, to talk about then and today. I mean, who rises from the dead? Did someone rise from the dead yesterday? No. Did someone rise from the dead last year? No. There's only one who has proven victorious over the grave, sin, and death, and that's Jesus. So ladies and gentlemen, let me just, just remind you, Today, unbelievers do not understand Christian terminology and doctrine. Can I just tell you to be careful? I think we assume people know more than they really do. You really got to be very elementary with folks today. You don't, you, don't, you don't make fun of them because they don't understand certain uh, narratives or accounts in Scripture. Like, dude, you stupid. You don't know about Noah's Ark. Like, don't do that. Oh, you've never heard of David and Goliath? Whoa, right? Like, don't get in people's faces. People are ignorant of biblical truth. And I say, what a great opportunity to, to start from scratch with them. Tell them the account of Christ. Share with them the gospel. We can no longer assume anything with anyone. Right? Just, uh, just imagine someone, imagine an alien popping into our world and they're just like, tell me what you believe. Well, there you go. You get to, like Festus had Paul do to him, right? Tell him the gospel. And at the root of the gospel is the, the restoration of God. That he steps into this world and that while we're yet sinners, because we all know we all fall, fall short of what God wants, that God sends a, a mediator, God sends a redeemer, God sends his own son. And imagine just when people, I talk to people about biblical truths without them knowing that they're biblical truths, and you could just see them respond like, really? What? Where'd you get that? Where'd you find that? And then you get a point with Jesus. See, 1 Corinthians 2, 2 verse 14, Paul says, the natural man does not understand the things of God. Why? Because they're spiritually appraised. Don't assume your neighbor understands things spiritually because they don't. 
Don't imagine your coworker will understand things. And this is where you get the opportunity to share, but it's up to God ultimately to change their hearts. Amen? Amen. Point number four. See, we're cruising. Aren't we cruising pretty fast? The certainty of humanity's curiosity. So Festus is ignorant. He came and wrap his mind around this guy who is dead and now risen again, right? Because, again, resurrection doesn't factor into his worldview. But you have Agrippa who's curious. Because Agrippa comes from a lineage of men who have dealt with this person of Jesus. And here it is, once again, decades later, on the scene, in his lap, he's curious about the case of Christ. Now think about Agrippa, if you would. He had no doubt... He knew a great deal about the way, the story of Christ, the resurrection, the uproar that was going on in Israel. He undoubtedly knew of Paul and looked forward to hearing the leading spokesman of Christianity in person. Paul had aroused his curiosity. Just like his great uncle had his curiosity aroused by Christ in Luke 9, Luke 23, especially in Luke 23 when Jesus is actually before him on trial and all Herod Antipas wanted was for Jesus to do a trick for him. If you remember Luke 23, I just want you to, do, I hear you're a miracle worker. Go ahead and do a miracle. Can I just tell you, God is not a circus God who's going to show up and jump through whatever hoop you, you hold up. That's not how our God operates. Can I get an amen on that? Agrippa is probably following suit. He probably just is like, hey, I hear... Some, some magic happens. I hear some sparks fly. I hear something miraculous may happen, right? He's curious, but he's curious for all the wrong reasons. And this, can, I just t- can I just say something about curiosity? Because I think curiosity is killing us just like it killed the cat. Anytime there's harm done to a cat, I'm not a, I don't have a problem with that. I'm just, ki- I'm just kidding. You guys hear the latest statistics. More Christians own dogs than cats. That was just publicly listed this week. So I don't know what that is, but... Uh, Sorry for all you cat lovers. We can still be friends. Why can't we be friends? All right, so curiosity. See, that's just to make sure everyone's kind of paying attention. And did he just say what he just said? Yeah, that's what I just said. So, so curiosity, here's the problem. Someone once said just recently, the error of our modern approach to knowledge is not in praising our desire to know, but in failing to discipline it. Talking about uh, curiosity. Like a vine, the desire to know needs the structure of the trellis and the pruning of the vine dresser in order to bear good fruit. We have so much at our disposal to pique our curiosity, but not so much for us to cultivate it into something disciplinary. Let me say this again. Agrippa is curious for selfish reasons. We can get buried in curiosity and never commit to something that's ultimately going to be cultivated for some sort of spiritual discipline in our lives. Think about social media. How many of you have been like, swipe, swipe, click, for this rabbit hole, like, I don't know about your laptop, my laptop knows me and says, ooh, I'm going to watch another video of Led Zeppelin playing a concert in the early 1970s. Oh, and in case you like that, there's an interview with Robert Plant. And in case you didn't know that, here's how you play the solo to Stairway to Whatever, and all of a sudden, I know, four hours later, my curiosity has led me to something really unproductive. And it really doesn't matter. And this is how curiosity works, right? Curiosity will feed our flesh, but hardly minister to our spirits. Unless we discipline it. Here's what's scary today. The curiosity of people 
getting their theology, getting their Bible teach here, teaching based on personalities on TikTok, which I'm going to tell you right now, a lot of these people, they should not have a platform to speak. And yet we're ministering to generations of people who are saying, well, this TikTok personality said this. That doesn't mean they're an expert. And we become curious and we follow this trail that doesn't lead to anything that cultivates discipline. It only curiosity, curiously brings destruction upon our souls. You know what you should be curious in? The things of God. The Word of God. What the Spirit of God is bringing so that that curiosity leads to a commitment to cultivate something of eternal value. Someone comes to me and says, look at this person. I sit there and go, bozo. I mean, uh, yeah, what they're saying is not correct. Our curiosity, ladies and gentlemen, is killing us. Here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Stop. Stop feeding yourself off all the stuff that is coming through your smartphone and your computer and television. And do not waver from what God's word says. Amen? Agrippa was curious, but it doesn't lead him to commitment. It leads him to disaster, as you're going to see next week. Point number five. The certainty of humanity's fantasy. Remember I talked about great pomp? The party, right? The word, look at verse 23 in your Bibles. The word great pomp literally means fantasy. They are throwing a fantasy They've created this fantasy, right, with all their, their attire and their music and all their decorations. They have created a fantasy. And I wonder why Luke, who's writing this account, wants us to know about this word and this party. And here's what I think it's about. The world will prop itself up. And they will portray this image of power, prestige, Wealth, wisdom, and Paul is going to stand in front of this group and he's going to portray something else because Paul isn't decked out in all his pageantry. He's not decked out in a, in, a, in a crown or royal robes. He is handcuffed and he's going to stand before this great display of power and prestige. And I think Luke wants us to see a contrast here. See, what the world deems as wisdom, God says, is foolishness. What the world deems as strength, God says, it's weakness. And we see that on full display here. This scene is meant to intimidate the Apostle Paul. Meaning you who come in here, this little Jewish man comes in and is talking about this resurrection. Who are you to speak that among such wealth, such power, such beauty, such grandeur, such great pomp? And yet Paul stands among this group. On one side, there's this, 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 these important people of the world. And on the other side is this one insignificant little Jewish man. Can I tell you, we don't know what really Paul looked like. We have one account in history that describes how Paul looked. It's not impressive. Here's what it says. He was a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs. 
in a good state of body with eyebrows meaning, meaning he had a unibrow. And his nose was somewhat hooked. So you can imagine, I'm like. And he walks into this room of beauty and majesty and glamour and wealth. And here's this unassuming, unintimidating spokesperson for Christ. I would have loved to have been there. I may have been one of those that made fun of him too. Like, who's this guy, right? (laughs) But ladies and gentlemen, is this not a reminder that with all these great people in their positions, power, pomp, pageantry on one side and Paul, this poor prisoner on the other, that what they have embraced, what this group has believed in, is all just a fantasy? Because the real power in the room is not with them, it's with Paul. The unassuming, unintimidating nature of this man who has this Christ-like dignity and confidence and peace, he is standing in front of these people, chains rattling, certainly not in the latest Gucci or Calvin Klein attire, but yet he's wearing the garment of the righteousness purchased for him by Jesus Christ. Yeah, he's a lowly prisoner, but he's the only person in that great auditorium who was really free. These are men and women who are dressed in some filthy rags, if you know what I mean. Agrippa and his party enter the hall with pageantry. Paul enters in chains. Agrippa is surrounded by a great company. Paul stands alone. Agrippa's wielded great earthly power. Paul carried divine truth from heaven itself. What irony that Paul, an heir to the very kingdom of heaven, with the freedom of the Son of God granted to him, must stand before this pretentious and moral court in chains, wearing neither crown nor gown, but only handcuffs and a plain prisoner's tunic, He dominated that scene with his quiet, Christ-like dignity and confidence. Because you know what this tells us, ladies and gentlemen? One day, this is all going to turn around. The men and women who parade themselves as if they are powerful and they are wealthy and they have such beauty, the fantasy is fleeting, the fantasy is passing. Ladies and gentlemen, the things of this world that people chase and purchase and long for have only imaginary fleeting power and importance and satisfaction attached to them. Ladies and gentlemen, these things that are seemingly important to people in this world will one day rot away. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul stands before this group and what's so ironic about this great pomp is that the very city in which Agrippa's father died is the very city they're in in Acts 12 when he was decked out in that mirror-like robe and all the sun rays were reflecting off of it, he dies on the spot being eaten by worms. What a picture. All your clothes and all your cars and all your houses and all your possessions and all of our treasure that we have fought so desperately to have will one day rust and burn up and the moths will come in and eat and destroy. And what do you got left? It will all be destroyed. And only what is done for Christ will last. Do not be intimidated by the world's power. 
Do not be intimidated by the world's wealth. Do not be intimidated by the world's pursuits. When we see the impressive things of this world, they usually seem to be what's lasting or what's stable, but, but Luke is telling us something different here, you guys. In time, it will all pass away. Agrippa has passed away. Bernice has passed away. Festus has passed away, and they have passed away, though on earth possessing everything, in eternity having nothing. But Paul stands as one who says, my citizenship is not of this world. I have a heavenly citizenship, and I have laid up for myself treasures in Christ where neither rust can contaminate or moths destroy or thieves break in and steal. Ladies and gentlemen, what are we living for? Perhaps our disappointments and our discouragements and our depression lies in the fact that we have treasured too much of this world and we haven't treasured him who is the treasure. Are we willing to embrace Matthew 14, 13, 44 and say, I'm going to find that treasure buried in a field and I'm going to go sell everything I have with joy to have that treasure? What do you need besides Christ? What do you, what do you need besides him? And yet you're clamoring and you're fighting and you're divorcing and you're breaking relationships and you're ruining your spirits to have what? The things of this world? What is the profit of man or a woman if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Who said that? It wasn't Abraham Lincoln. It wasn't Ben Franklin. It was the Son of God himself who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who steps in and says, nothing in this world will satisfy you but me. Come to me, all you who are weary. Come to me, all you who are empty. Come to me, all you who are hungry and thirsty. And find life. Find joy. What are you chasing that's not Jesus? thinking it's going to bring you happiness. C.S. Lewis said, if we discover in this world nothing is meant to satisfy us, it's, a, it's an indication that you are made for another world. You aim at earth, in the end you will get nothing, but if you aim at heaven, you get heaven and earth. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a fantasy the shadowlands of something greater, more magnificent, something eternal. What are you doing by investing in the fantasy and not investing in eternity? Don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. Invest your life in the things that will matter for eternity. Amen? I went from teacher to preacher because I can't help but look at this scene and go, where am I? In what ways have I bought into the lies? Thinking I got to keep up with the Joneses. You've heard that phrase? Or the, the, the grass is always greener, right? The grass is always greener. You want to know why? Because the water bill is always higher, all right? You can chase that all you want. Stop doing everything the world does. You've got to live differently. 
got to live differently. You've got to raise your kids differently. You've got to invest your finances in things that are different. Because here's what I do know. Things are going to burn up. And what will last for eternity? Two things, the word of God and the souls of men and women. That's it. I'm trying to save you from headache and heartache. Ultimately, I'm trying to save you from an eternity apart from Christ. Are your affections for him and him alone? Do you treasure him more than you treasure anything else? And we'll close with the last certainty, and this really dovetails into next week. The certainty of humanity's need. I get, to, I get to preach this message to you. And you get to now preach this message to a world that needs desperately Christ. He is our only hope. You die without Jesus, you will die and spend a Christless eternity in misery. I, I don't want that for any person. I don't care how beautiful you are. I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how powerful you are. All that is a fantasy regarding this realm alone. What happens when you are six feet under and you're worm food? The world needs Christ. And what I love is that Paul is going to show us what Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 12. It says, when you stand before authorities... Trust the Spirit of God to work in you and through you. No matter who you may be talking to, no matter what the audience may look like, here's what I do know, is that everyone needs Jesus. There's the common denominator. We all stand as fallen creatures before a holy God. And the only mediator between God and man is the person of Jesus Christ. That's the only message that matters. And this is the message that Paul is about ready to preach. And he does it without being intimidated because he has confidence of who he is in Christ. He's going to give one of the most amazing defenses for Christianity that we'll see in the entire Bible. It is the most elaborate, it is the most lengthy, and yet there is an optimism and there's a fervor in his voice. His speech is not so much this defense as it is a positive presentation of the gospel and an evangelistic appeal that says, what are you going to do with Jesus today? Temporary. It will burn. It's not going to last for eternity. See, when things break, it's like, oh, no. guess what? It doesn't last. You know when you get that first car, car scratch on your brand new car? Guess what? It won't last. Amen? When you get that laptop and it's just not working the way you thought it would, guess what? It doesn't last. You can just smile and brush it off, and hopefully that's what you do. Keep the expletives down to a minimum. Because it doesn't matter in the big scheme of things. I can't wait for next week. Paul's presentation of the gospel is like none other. And it may take us a couple weeks to get through it because it's so good. Where are you at this morning? What has God illuminated in your hearts today that he says, don't ignore this prompting? Here's what I love, is that 
I'm not up here as a speaker presenting to you facts, material. I'm up here and we're in this room together because the Holy Spirit is living and active. God's working with his word to bring something to light in our hearts that he says, this is why we have met today. What are you leaving with? What are you challenged by? What are you convicted over? Don't ignore it. Act on what God is prompting you to do. Start praying, and God will always support the work that he has pointed out he wants to do in, in your life. If you resist it, you're against God. You're really fighting against God. If he's illuminating it, submit and watch his power work in you and through you for his glory and your good. And all God's people said, Amen. let's stand, let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the, the appointment that is this gathering. That is not just another thing on our calendar, but Lord, it is a, uh, it is a time that you have set apart for your people to corporately worship you. To gather and focus upon the things that are not of this earth, but the things that are eternal. Lord, you have deemed this an important occasion because you're a God who speaks through his truth, your word. I pray James 1 over our, our, our congregation this morning that we have looked intently into the law of liberty. Let us not be like the man who looks in the mirror and walks away and forgets what he's seen. But let us remember what we've seen and let us act accordingly. Lord, thank you that you're a God who is continuing to work in and through us. You have not given up. Your faithfulness is, is, is true today. That you continue to want to conform us into the image of Christ. You continue to want to wean us off loving the world and loving your son. And that you're going to perfect this work in us till the day of Christ Jesus. Help us to surrender, to submit, to obey, and to treasure nothing but Jesus himself. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness, for your kindness, for your grace. Thank you for this body of believers. Thanks for being our God and loving us through your Son. And it's in his name we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift his face toward you and give you his grace and peace forever and ever. Amen. Love you guys.